Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome all of you who are in person, as well as those of you who are joining us online. I'm thankful that we are here to get together today in the house of the Lord. I want to thank Pastor Joe for launching our chosen series last week. Um, man, that was, uh, that was pretty awesome as he uh, led us into that opening episode. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I hope all of you have had an opportunity uh, to find uh, the chosen. There's uh, several ways that you can do that. Uh, it's on, uh, uh, if you have Amazon Prime, it's available free there. If you have Peacock, which is another uh, free TV app, it's free there as well. Uh, or you can download the chosen app on your smart device and watch season one for free there. Noticing a pattern here for free. And uh, finally, you can purchase it, that's not for free, at uh, pretty much any department store. Or we have some uh, uh, copies of the DVDs uh, in our church library. We have more coming because of folks and their requests for it. So if you, and now if you're like my mother, the DVDs just as difficult as the downloading the app. But nevertheless, if you can handle the DVD, uh, and even if none of that works, um, we are uh, Thursday at 4 o'clock. Uh, we, we, will, we will air the episode here at the church uh, in the choir rehearsal room, and uh, you can call the office and get more information about that as well. I hope that you have seen episode two. If you haven't, uh, we pray that you'll... Uh, uh, be able to keep up with the message because we're looking through the chapter in Isaiah that uh, is one of those pivotal chapters in that prophet, uh, in that prophetic book. You have to uh, remember that in, in the first couple of century, or first couple of years in the first century uh, of the church, there wasn't the New Testament yet. The New Testament was being written. And uh, so the, uh, many of the early Christian preachers preached from Isaiah. So much so that Isaiah became known as the gospel of the New Testament. And so uh, of all of the books in the uh, Old Testament, of all the prophetic books in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah had significant impact on the growth and expansion of the church in those first couple of decades. So in Isaiah chapter 43, if you have your Bibles or your uh, smartphone or your tablet or however you read God's Word, uh, we're going to begin reading in Isaiah 43. We're looking at one verse a week, but I want to go back and remind us of verse 1, and then verse 2 is for today. But now thus says the Lord, who, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name you are mine. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Here reads the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Some of you might have had this experience. For me, it was especially poignant as I was working on this message because as I was thinking about this message earlier in the week, I realized that on January 11th, it had actually been eight years since I had preached my father's funeral his memorial service. 
And uh, as I was thinking about that eulogy that I had given for him, um, which incidentally um, was um, one that I actually got through. I, I didn't think I'd get through it. I remember those first few lines in that eulogy, and this was those lines. My dad was my hero, and that's true. Now, I continued, some of you thought my dad was a hard man, and he was strict. As a child, he rarely, and I just put the word rarely in there, so that's some sort of nice disclaimer, because I can honestly never remember a time when he had to ask me to do something a second time. I was expected to obey, are you ready, quickly and cheerfully. Now, as I was preaching to that audience in the, that congregation in that little church, um, I could tell that most folks who knew my dad thought that I was a bold-faced liar because my dad was a tough man, a tough man. This was a part of his personality that was something you could count on in every aspect of life. There were tons of things in my father's life that were simply non-negotiable. And one of those non-negotiable things was something that I want to share with you a little bit about today because one of his non-negotiables was you will not do any work whatsoever on Sunday. I mean, it was so militaristic in our house. We did not go out to eat after church. We did not go to stores because in doing so, we were forcing other people to have to work. And I remember my dad worked on the road a lot at nuclear power plants. I remember in, in one part of my life, I was about 16 or 17, he was working up in New Jersey and, and it was Sunday afternoon and I figured he wasn't going to come back that weekend. So I decided I'd wash my car. 1972 Dodge Dart. It might have looked like a a pile of, uh, of garbage to everybody else, but it was my pride and joy. And so Sunday afternoon, I was washing it, and who should pull into the driveway unannounced but my father. And as I stood with sponge in hand, I knew that the next several hours were not going to be fun. My mother did not cook on Sunday. There was no vacuuming on Sunday, no laundry that was to be done, obviously no washing of cars, no mending of clothes. There was no cookouts. There was no mowing of grass. There was nothing that we did on Sunday except go to church. We required us to work, right, Pastor Joe and the sound team and musicians. You could read, you could watch television, or you could just sit outside and enjoy the weather. But for Dad... We had to work at making sure we didn't work. In our series, The Chosen, we're looking at episode two today where we're introduced to Shabbat, Hebrew for the word Sabbath. The greeting among the Jews on this particular evening, which would have been Friday evening, was Shabbat Shalom, meaning a peaceful Sabbath. We Christians have similar words that we have long forgotten in our ancient greetings. We used to say to one another, good Lord's Day to you. Why don't you pretend you're in the 16th century, turn to one another and just say, good Lord's Day to you. 
Didn't that feel weird? Well, let, let me, before we look at the clip today, let me just establish some things for us that will help us. First of all, um, the uh, 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 Sabbath is, the Sabbath, the day of rest is, has always been, and forever shall be on Saturday, okay? Sunday is not the Sabbath, regardless of what my father would say. Sunday is the Lord's day. So you have the Sabbath on Saturday, and you have the Lord's day on Sunday. Now, in the first 200 years of the history of the church, Christians, that is, those who believe Jesus was the Messiah, and Jews, those who quite not quite yet had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as well as those Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, worshiped together. It was a big issue about what to do with these Gentiles who were coming to Judaism. Can they come to synagogue? Because that's where Jews would worship at the time. And it wasn't until about the mid-200s that the Christian movement, the followers of Jesus, and the Jewish movement, if you will, the, those that stayed uh, loyal to the, the traditions and the, and the laws and rejected Jesus as the Messiah began to separate. And it wasn't until that time that the worship of Sunday began to be standardized as the only day Christians worshiped, and Saturday became the only day that Jews worshiped. And the reason Christians picked Sunday was because that was the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. Sabbath is on the seventh day. The Lord's day is on the first day. And we actually have verses in the Bible that point to that. In, Acts, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, that is, is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we know that even in those first few years, while the Apostle Paul was evangelizing the ancient Roman world, that Christians were already making a habit of meeting on the first day of the week to celebrate the Lord's Supper. By the way, if you finish reading about it, it's a story about how this fellow uh, got so bored at Paul's teachings, he fell out of the second story window and died. That's why we keep you all very close to the ground here. Now, some detractors have accused the Roman Catholic Church of changing the Sabbath to Sunday. Well, first of all, the accusation is rooted in what I think is a real misunderstanding of what Sabbath means. And that's the one thing that I hope some of us, I hope all of us, will take from this place today to understand what Sabbath means now, in the time of the Messiah, that is Jesus. And second, no one changed anything. That's a straw man argument. If anything, for Christians in the first 200 years after the birth of the church, the Lord's Day was simply added and then eventually became the only day of observance. That is, as Christians went to church twice a week. How would you like to do that? Well, that wasn't really all that strange because to the Jews, Sabbath was more than just going to synagogue. As a matter of fact, the idea of weekly attendance would have seemed strange to some Jews. Why? Because why in the world would you limit your attendance to synagogue to only one day a week? Most Jews would go to synagogue for prayer, for teaching, for reading, multiple times a week, if not every day. Sabbath, though, was, by and large, a home celebration. 
something that occurred in your homes. And it was rooted in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. By the way, Exodus 20 is essentially the Ten Commandments. And yet it was more than just family. It was a reminder of what it means to be the people of God. And even more still, it was a reminder of who God was and what God had done. So with that, with that understanding now, let's take a few moments and look at this week's episode, this clip, as our Lord would have experienced the Sabbath. find us. I followed that mule, Barnaby. <laughs> Not that he waited. Looking as handsome as ever, Barnaby. <laughs> Lucky guess, Shula. <laughs> Is this the place? If Mary's here, it is. Do I know you? Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm James. This is Thaddeus. We were told this would be a good place to come. We can leave if it's awkward. Oh, oh no. Oh, please come in. You are most welcome here. Can we help? Oh, no. Well, uh, yes, I... I don't know what I'm doing. You <laughs> see food, that's a victory. If I'm not doing something or doing something wrong, you tell me. Oh, nonsense. It's already great. Can't remember the last time I was invited to Shabbat dinner. Me, never. you never been to Shabbat? Of course I've been to one. Been to lots. Just never got invited. <laughs> 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 Who's the extra seat for? Oh, uh, for Elijah. Am I right? I remember my mother always setting an extra place for Elijah. That's only for Passover. Just once a year at Seder. Oh. Well, when Seder comes, I'll have a head start on setting up. Can I read it for you, Mary? Stop it, Barnaby. I read better than you. <laughs> my father taught me. Very impressive. <laughs> Oh, uh, is the first star out? Yes, let's eat. Like I said, you are very popular. Or it's a Pharisee here to shut us down for letting you be here. Hello, Mary. Hello. It's good to see you. Yes. Yes. I don't want to be rude, but would it be okay if, if I... Oh, <laughs> yes, of course, please come in. I just never thought you'd um, 
I, I have guests here. Uh, this is my first time. I don't know what I'm doing. Rabbi, Rabbi. You already know these men. They are students of mine. I trust they have been polite. Of course. Your guests can take the seat. Yes, Mary? Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, of course, please have a seat. I keep saying of course a lot. <laughs> um, Francis is the man I told you about who, um, who helped me. Oh, yes, yeah. Mary told us so much about you. Oh, I hope not too much. I'm Barnaby. This is Shula. She is blind. Ah. In case you couldn't tell. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I don't actually know your name. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Huh? Well, apparently something good can come from Nazareth. <laughs> wow. Mary, I'm honored to be here. Why don't you begin? Oh, no, I, I couldn't now that you are here. You must. Thank you, but this is your home. And I would love for you to do it. Okay. I'll just, uh, I'll just read from this now. Now the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And God completed on the seventh day his work that he did. And God. And God abstained on the seventh day from all the work he did. And God blessed the seventh day, and he hallowed it. For thereon he abstained from all the work that God created to do. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Lovingly and willingly given us your you have lovingly and willingly given us your Shabbat as an inheritance in memory of creation. Because this is the first day of our holy assemblies in memory of the exodus from Egypt. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the bread from the earth. Amen. Amen. For so many of us, <clears throat> that may seem like such a strange, strange scene. We are a nation that works. There was a survey of American companies that found that the average number of hours that were expected out of upper management personnel per week was 70 hours. For the majority of industries in the United States, a 12-hour workday is not unusual. And are you ready for this? The demographic that works the longest hours, I don't know if you're ready for this, 
for all of the bad press that they get, the demographic that works the longest hours in our nation are millennials. A demographic group that's often derided for the lack of work ethic, the research suggests that they work longer hours per day than any of us. They take less vacations, and they are more likely to work responding to emails or texts or messages on their free time so that their employer doesn't pay them for that. And for those who are more likely to work this way, for those of you who work exceedingly long hours, you have higher rates of anxiety, depression, physical health issues. You have a higher rate of divorce, behavioral issues with your children, and you're less likely to advance in your career. That's not the story we're sold, but that's the proof of the research. Research has shown that those workers who take less vacations are actually less likely to get raises, receive bonuses, or receive above-average performance reviews. And consequently, they are also ones who have lower morale and commitment to the organization for whom they work. How's that? We're socialized as a people into a never-ending quest of pulling our own weight and the weight of everybody else. We are socialized that we are our own gods. And that if we work hard enough, we will create our own paradise. And this worldview has infected our spiritual lives as well. Number one, most Americans are convinced that they earn their own salvation. And number two, we begin to look at the world from the same perspective that we perceive the world looks at us. That is, is that we are to provide a service, that we are nothing more than a commodity. And because of that, that's how we begin to look at other people as well, even in the church. And this has influenced how the church thinks and acts. Some of it may be good, others of it certainly not good. Let me ask you a couple of questions. You don't need to respond except in your hearts. Are you a member? or are you a guest? Are you a disciple, or are you a donor? Most of you know Presbyterian pastor Tim Keller. He quotes an article by Judith Shulevitz, who's a journalist with the New York Times Book Review. I read the article that she wrote, and I'm going to quote some of that article as well, although it's a little bit different than how Tim Keller quoted it, with a different conclusion than Pastor Keller came after reading it. Here's what she writes. About a decade ago, I developed a full-blown weekend disorder of my own, perhaps because I'm Jewish. It came on Friday nights. My mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon, I'd be unresponsive and morose. After a while, I got lonely, and I did something that I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in at the nearby synagogue. She writes, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was much more complicated than that. That's why the Puritan and the Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional, requiring extensive advanced preparation. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. 
They were meant to communicate the insight that in interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as social sanction. At first reading, there's a lot in that that I can resonate with, and probably you can as well, even though it may never change how we act. There is some wisdom in her words, but at the same time, I think she misses the point. Does intentionality help make us better? Maybe. But it misses what the Bible says about the connection between Sabbath and Jesus. And this is the thing I hope we all leave with today. Now, I've already read to you the text from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, about the source of the Sabbath. But as the traditions of the Jewish people began to develop, God reminded them of another event that ought to be remembered on Sabbath that slowly was incorporated into the Jewish traditions. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. For when God liberated his people when they were slaves in Egypt, God ties the Sabbath to freedom from slavery. Now you think about this. Any of you who overwork, any of you who labor at the expense of your own selves and that of your family, does that not make you a slave? Anyone who cannot rest from their work is a slave by definition, right? And who is your master? Our need for success? The false gods in our culture that worship stuff? Those slave masters will abuse you. They will enslave you if we are not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. Now I'm going to step on some toes, including my own just for a few paragraphs. Sabbath is about more than just external rest of the body. You just can't stop working, sit down in the chair, and assume you're taking Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is about your inner rest of your soul as well. We need rest from the anxiety and strain of our overwork. Listen, most of us embrace the anxiety of overworking because we have an innate need to justify ourselves. That I'm worthy. That I'm worthy of the position which I hold. I'm worthy of the paycheck that I receive. I'm worthy of the advances that I might make in my career that I'm worthy to gain the money or the status or the reputation that we think we have to have. Avoiding overwork requires deep rest and Christ's finished work for our salvation. I think that's where it begins. That we are constantly in our spiritual life trying to justify ourselves that we are worthy of God's love. And all that that can lead to is a sense of arrogance spiritually. And it is nowhere near the gospel. 
Here is where we Christians have a few things to learn about Sabbath rest. Don't, don't just take my words for it, as in all things, let's look at the Scriptures, and then you search the Scriptures and see if these things are true. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. That's how he begins. True Sabbath rest is realized when we enter into God's rest. The writer goes on, Hebrews goes on, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were, un- they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Now, now let me pause here and remind you of some of Jesus' teachings, okay? In Mark chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples are, are called down by some of the Pharisees, which we are introduced to in the Chosen series, because they plucked some grains to eat on the Sabbath. For the laws of the Pharisees said that you could not reap or sow on the Sabbath. So therefore, therefore reaching down, grabbing a few grains of wheat, rubbing them in your hands and eating them would be reaping, and therefore a violation of the Sabbath. And so in verse 25 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus reminds them of King David. And he says to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We've heard that phrase so many times. What does that mean? Did you know that air was made for you to breathe? Did you know that water was made for you to drink, to water your crops, to give you life? Would you stop drinking water? Would you stop breathing? Sabbath was made for you. Why would you refuse that gift? And then in verse 28 of chapter 2, so the, and this is the pivotal verse, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Hang with me. There is a connection between the Son of Man and Sabbath. What's the connection? Well, we're almost there. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Now let's jump back to the Hebrews passage again, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's the message I hope that all of us will leave this day with. Sabbath was, Sabbath is a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of Jesus. Like Mary Magdalene in our series, the work of, 
of a holy man, Nicodemus, with all of his education, all of his attention to the law, gave him zero authority over the demons. But when the demons sensed the presence of Jesus, you'll remember, they fled. And it was in that moment that Jesus healed her. Now we're working through uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. What does this mean? Our victories are not ours. They are Christ's victories. It is He who fights the battles in our lives. It is He who exercises the demons in your life. It is He who does His work through us for the glory of His Father. You see, if you leave here thinking that today's sermon was on how you need to rest more or how you need to come to church more regularly, you've missed the point of the message. Sabbath, not not the day, but the results is for us. Jesus is our Sabbath. Because of Him we rest, always. We don't work off the penalty of our sin. He did that on the cross. We don't push ourselves to earn His favor or His blessings. God gives that to us freely because of the merits of His Son, not our merits. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. Please, brothers and sisters, stop believing the lie that Satan tells you that you aren't good enough. If there's one thing that you and I can leave this place with today is to recognize that our work to earn God's love and favor is in vain. It is Jesus Christ who gives that to us freely. When we started this sermon series, Pastor, we, we ordered the books. I think there might still be some that are available, $13. Pastor Joe came to me and he said, ooh, this book is hard. And, and don't let that preclude you from getting the book. You can work at it as long as you want or as hard as you want. He spent six hours, he said, on the first week on that first chapter. And so I decided that something, I did something wrong because it took me 20 minutes. <laughs> so I went back. And I started working through that chapter myself, on cha- just in chapter 1. And there was a question on chapter 1. And you remember last week it was about fear. What it means to be called, what it means to be chosen. And one of the questions that was asked in the first chapter of this book is, what are you most afraid of with God? I'm going to be real vulnerable with you for just a moment. I told you about my dad, remember? Moms, dads, you can never understand how much how you treat your children impacts how they understand God. Terrifies me as a parent. My dad was my hero. I love my dad more than anything. But I rarely heard, good job, son. Made it all the sweeter when he would say it. And it wasn't until he hit about 75 
age 75, not 1975, that he began to tell me, I love you. It's just something I never heard from him. I knew that he loved me. I'm not upset. I don't go cry about my dad, blah, blah, blah. I know that that is serious for some, but it really hasn't impacted me as much with regard to my relationship with my father. But here's what it did do. It impacted my relationship with God. Because I was always trying to earn and to win God's approval. And every single day, I would ask myself, did I do good enough to make you proud of me, God? And the question from that first chapter, what are you most afraid of? I'm most afraid that I won't have done good enough or been good enough for Dad, my heavenly Dad. And so, God never leaves us, never forsakes us, never abandons us. And over the course of decades, the Lord, like the dripping of, of a faucet that eventually stains a sink, taught me the meaning of grace. And I'll never forget the day when the Holy Spirit finally opened my mind and I came to understand the gospel. That Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It suddenly dawned on me that my value had already been determined. Not because of what I had done, but because of what Jesus had done. What did Jesus do? He died for me. And when that hit me, as a guy who had been pastoring for over a decade, I knew I needed to send an apology letter to all the churches I had served previously because I hadn't fully understood the gospel. You are loved not because you're lovable. I know some of you. <laughs> you're loved because that's who God is. And when you can get that, the whole world will change. And you'll suddenly understand Sabbath. <laughs>